Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, December 28th, 2022, the 707th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple of days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the social media, the writing, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So let's get right into it and move along with the process of catching up from the five days that I did not record a show. And just for the record, I'm not going to record one on Monday either. So there'll be four this week, four next week, 
I got the other shows happening. Was just on Badlands last night for what we missed. Had a great conversation with Jordan Schachtel. I did Sean Morgan's show yesterday, Making Sense of the Madness on American Media Periscope. I sat in for John this morning on Badlands Daily. CanCon and I did that. I will be on Conservative Daily this afternoon. So that's six shows in two days, plus Thursday, plus Friday. So you got eight. You got eight in four days. So I'm kind of making up for it where I can. But definitely check out that show last night with Jordan Schachtel. Jordan is a journalist, an independent journalist on Twitter. He has a background in foreign policy and international affairs. And we discussed at length global governance. It is the sort of conversation that I think could be fairly appealing to mainstream audiences. So if there are people in your life who don't understand what is actually happening right now in a much broader sense, that there actually is a system of global governance being implemented by people we did not elect, that's the sort of thing you can share with them and hopefully wake them up a bit. So anyway, let's get into the current events. Many of you already know by now that on Christmas Eve day, the judge in Arizona dismissed Carrie Lake's lawsuit against Katie Hobbs and Stephen Richer and the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors and the Maricopa County Director of Elections, Scott Jarrett. Now, the Badlands crew and Praying Medic all did a great job covering that trial live last week as it was happening. There was a pretty incredible amount of evidence presented, and the defense even had witnesses reading their answers while claiming that they weren't reading their answers and perjuring themselves in other various ways. The fact remains that there are hundreds of thousands of ballots in Maricopa County that have no chain of custody. The fact remains that they did not do signature matching and that their signature matching system is a preposterous one. In multiple ways, Maricopa County did not follow the law in conducting their election. And it should not be up to a judgment and opinion from a judge deciding whether or not enough votes were affected to have changed the outcome. The fact is the election was conducted outside the law. They failed to follow the law. It doesn't really matter if it's intentional, if it's malfeasance or if it's just a mistake. The fact is the election wasn't conducted lawfully, which means that the citizens don't have any reason to respect the outcome. And that much is obvious. They don't have the chain of custody documentation. They have to have the chain of custody documentation. If you have to have something and you don't have it, well, then you didn't get the job done and no one should have faith in the work you did. So after that, Katie Hobbs and her attorneys, they all filed for sanctions. They wanted to punish Carrie Lake and her attorneys for bringing the case in the first place. And the judge dealing with that issue alone denied their motion for sanctions. And he said this in the decision. There is no doubt that each side believes firmly in its position with great conviction. Actually, there is some doubt in that. The fact that the plaintiff failed to meet the burden of clear and convincing evidence required for each element 
of Arizona Revised Statute Section 16-672 does not equate to a finding that her claims were or were not groundless and presented in bad faith. Any legal decision must be based on the law and facts rather than subjective beliefs or partisan opinions, no matter how strongly held. The court has heard all the evidence and arguments the court has carefully examined and thought through the facts and evidence before it in the motions and at the hearing. So the judge is saying that he got all of the evidence and looked at it and it just simply wasn't enough, but they did not have a trial on eight out of the 10 counts in Carrie Lake's original lawsuit. They didn't go through the signature matching stuff or any of that. So the judge actually cut off the opportunity to see and consider a whole lot of evidence. And either the claims are groundless or they're not. If the claims are not groundless, that means she has legitimate reason to be contesting an election. And the judge seems to be, at least in some sense, confirming that she did have reason to contest the election, but it just wasn't enough proof to overturn the election. Now, I think all that is a bit silly. And in Carrie Lake's lawsuit, they actually presented the court with legal precedent of judges in that position deciding the cases in favor of Carrie Lake's position based on the logic I just described a couple of minutes ago. The fact that the election has been called into doubt through these unlawful votes, the fact that Maricopa County actually does have to follow the law to count a vote following the law with the process by which that vote is created is necessary to form a valid vote. And if you're counting votes that cannot be proven valid, then you are operating outside the law and it's not lawful to certify that election. Another interpretation of that is absolute madness. This is the only way elections could possibly work. This is why the rules exist in the first place. And this is the problem with the Democrat philosophy that we must count all votes. What they mean when they say that is whatever votes we can amass to flood this system with must be counted. We got these votes. Now they're in the system. You have to count them or else people are going to be disenfranchised. That's really their logic. The judge acts as though Carrie Lake has to prove that they did it intentionally and has to prove a specific amount of fraud that would have overturned the election. Showing that there are 300,000 ballots without proper chain of custody documentation should throw that election into doubt and every other election as well. And let's not forget, this is not the sort of thing that only happens in Arizona. So we will see where they go on this case. Carrie Lake has already filed her appeal. It's going to go up to the Arizona Court of Appeals, and then they're going to have it seen by the Arizona Supreme Court. And at that point, maybe it'll move on and eventually reach the Supreme Court of the United States. Hopefully it does. If it's going to, then the results in the meantime are not something to get upset about. We know that the court systems have been infiltrated and corrupted. We know that lawyers and judges are threatened by the regime so they keep the results of these fraudulent elections in place 
And that is what we have seen for the most part around the country since 2020. So I know it's frustrating, but we are going to just have to let the process play out, see where it goes and react intelligently at each and every step. What we don't need to do is black pill everybody and say all hope is lost. So let's move to some other fairly big news from yesterday. This is from CBS News. Supreme Court keeps Title 42 border expulsions in place indefinitely, granting GOP-led petition. The Supreme Court on Tuesday allowed U.S. border officials to continue expelling migrants under a policy known as Title 42 indefinitely, granting a petition from Republican-led states to prevent the Biden administration from immediately ending the pandemic-related measure. The high court decided to hear a request from 19 Republican-led states who were seeking to delay the end of Title 42, which was originally set to expire on December 21st because of a lower court order that found the policy to be unlawful. The Supreme Court will now hear arguments on whether it should allow the Republican-controlled states to defend Title 42's legality during its February 2023 session. In the meantime, the court agreed to suspend the lower court order, which had invalidated the expulsion policy. That means Title 42 will likely remain in place for several months pending the high court's review. First invoked in March 2020 at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic, Title 42 is a public health law dating back to the 19th century that federal border officials have cited to expel migrants 2.5 million times to Mexico or their home countries without allowing them to request asylum, a right enshrined in U.S. and international refugee law. It's worth mentioning that that is a right for legitimate asylum claims at proper points of entry along the border. That's not something that illegal immigrants are supposed to be able to just walk across and then use as an excuse for why their violation of American immigration law should simply be forgiven and ignored, especially as they've crossed the border in the company of Mexican drug cartels as part of an overt human trafficking program. The mainstream media portrays this as if these millions of people crossing illegally into our country each year are all really escaping certain death otherwise. But that's not what they're doing, and they're not predominantly Mexicans. We have illegal aliens arriving in this country every month from somewhere around 150 different nations in this world. People with asylum claims, people who are escaping situations where their lives are at grave threat from state action against them, they're supposed to go to the next available country. They're not supposed to sign up with a globalist NGO, be transported overseas into Central America, then join with the cartels in a massive human caravan to be brought over the border where they meet another globalist NGO and then are just distributed around the country so that their labor and their political power can be exploited. We basically are justifying and rationalizing 
a legitimate modern day slave trade by saying it's okay. These people are willing to claim that they're seeking asylum in America. And why are they doing that? Well, because they were located by globalist NGOs after the globalists have destroyed their countries and created a permanent underclass. And they are promised a better life in America by these NGOs. We have this idea that is forced upon us by the media, like all these people just up and left their homes and made this impossible journey on their own to get into the United States. But that's not the case. When some organization approaches poor and devastated people who have virtually no hope of a better future where they are, and those people are then told that they'll have housing and food and medical care in America where they can work if they're willing to make this trip, it's pretty easy to see that's why they're coming. These people didn't just escape on their own. There's nothing natural about this. And it's important to understand that. And there's nothing natural about these asylum claims either. Steve Cortez was on The War Room this morning, and he shared a quote from Barack Hussein Obama where he said, Typically, refugee status is not granted just based on economic need or because a family lives in a bad neighborhood or poverty. It's typically defined fairly narrowly. The state, for example, that was targeting political activists and they need to get out of the country for fear of prosecution or even death. So that was Barack Obama's standard. Now we just get to ship millions of people here. And by we, I mean the global communists ship millions of people here who come across the border. They sneak across the border. And then when they make contact with border officials, they claim that they were seeking asylum for an enormous number of reasons, basically any reason. And the people at the border are told to accept that reason, process them and then let them go. This is nothing more than an absolutely immoral abuse of laws, and it's not new. A guy named Scott in the Telegram chat shared an article from Heritage in 2013. This is December 20th, 2013, so a little over nine years ago. This is Hans von Spakovsky writing, and he still does excellent work. Federal judge, the Obama administration aids and abets human trafficking. A federal judge in Texas has issued a searing indictment of the Obama administration's immigration policy. He accuses the government of, quote, completing the criminal mission of human traffickers who are violating the border security of the United States, end quote, and assisting a, quote, criminal conspiracy in achieving its illegal goals nine years ago. And I'm a conspiracy theorist for saying what this is. Now, I mean, the form of this should be visible. The form of the system should be visible by this point. You can see what the system is designed to produce. You can watch every element of the system function in service of producing the results the system is designed to produce. So it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just how they set it up. 
They're also not just simply abusing the laws or skirting around the laws. They do that for sure, but they also change the laws and they set up a system that ignores the laws. It's not like they're not getting caught. It's not like no one knows that laws are being broken and that the asylum system is being abused. It's that they must preserve the slave trade or other parts of the system break down. This is how the system was intended to be operated. This is how they use the system all over the world. The system can't stop because then the agenda doesn't work out. It's like them trying to stop election fraud. It's not like everyone who says that the elections are safe and secure and that doubting the election is spreading the big lie. It's not like those people don't understand that the elections are stolen. Of course they do. They just benefit from it. And the entire system would break down if Americans had legitimate elections They are committed to the system and preserving the system. This is a state sanctioned system of human trafficking. It is a slave trade and our illegitimate administration is participating with the global governing bodies and with the Mexican drug cartels to facilitate this slave trade. And think about the cartels. They're not just simply drug dealers out on the street. They're not just little street gangs selling drugs on the corner. They are essentially the private armies of the global governing bodies of the regime, and they exist to facilitate the trafficking of drugs and humans, and they are fully militarized and weaponized. They are able to threaten politicians, entire neighborhoods. Everyone must bend to their will because they have no depth to evil that they will not sink below. They're making billions of dollars a year and they are armed by people like Barack Obama. Actually, not a single element of this is a mistake. It's not human error. There's not individuals all abusing the system individually. The system is designed to function this way. It is designed to create a situation where no one can stop it because the global governing bodies don't want it stopped. They want unskilled workers who are happy with this small improvement in their lifestyle and are willing to go through the journey of actually getting to America with the cartels and still trust these people and go work for them. And as is often true when talking about the regime, what their system produces that they are callous about that they don't care about at all is, of course, crimes against humanity, as usual. Back to the article again, 2013. The judge calls the administration's behavior dangerous and unconscionable and says that DHS should cease telling the citizens of the United States that it is enforcing our border security laws because it clearly is not. Even worse, it is helping those who violate these laws and watch any hearing where Alejandro Mayorkas from DHS is testifying about the immigration situation. The entire administration right now, 
the illegitimate Biden administration is out there saying that our borders are not open, that our borders are actually controlled and that everything is going fine. They are out there telling the American people this. And none of that should be surprising since they did the exact same thing in 2013. On December 13th, federal district court judge Andrew S. Hannon of Brownsville, Texas, issued his order in U.S. versus Nava Martinez. It described in shocking detail the malfeasance of the government. Mirtha Veronica Nava Martinez, an admitted human trafficker and resident alien, pleaded guilty to attempting to smuggle a 10-year-old El Salvadoran girl into the U.S. This was Nava Martinez's second felony offense. She was convicted of food stamp fraud in 2011. She was caught at the Brownsville and Matamoros Bridge checkpoint in Texas after being hired by persons unknown to smuggle the girl into the United States. The girl's mother, Patricia Elizabeth Salmarone Santos, is an illegal alien living in Virginia. She had solicited the unknown smugglers to get her daughter from El Salvador to the U.S. for the agreed upon price of $8,500. As Judge Hannon pointed out, the human trafficking conspiracy instigated by Salmaron Santos was interrupted when Nava Martinez was arrested. But, quote, the goal of the conspiracy was successfully completed thanks to the actions of the United States. Hannon expressed grave concern over the apparent policy of DHS of completing the criminal mission of individuals who are violating the border security of the United States. That is a quote from the federal district court judge. After the child was taken into custody, DHS agents learned that the mother had instigated this illegal conduct. Yet DHS delivered the child to the mother and took no enforcement action. It did not arrest her. It did not prosecute her. It did not even initiate deportation proceedings for her. As the judge said, instead of enforcing the laws of the United States, the government took direct steps to help the individuals who violated it. Conduct for which any, quote, private citizen would and should be prosecuted. What especially angered the judge was that this was the fourth case of this nature that he had in as many weeks, all involved, quote, human traffickers who smuggled minor children and were apprehended short of delivering the children to their ultimate destination, end quote. In each case, the parents were in this country illegally and had initiated and funded the illegal activity. And in each instance, DHS completed the crime by delivering the children to the parents and refusing to take any action against them. As the judge pointed out, this means the DHS is encouraging, quote, parents to put their minor children in perilous situations subject to the whims of evil individuals. According to the judge, quote, this concern for the safety of these children is not fanciful or theoretical. It is a real and immediate concern. While the Santos child had been transported in a car Quote, others are made to swim the Rio Grande River or other bodies of water in remote areas. As Judge Hannon was waiting for the judgment in this case to be prepared, quote, two illegal aliens drowned, two more are missing, and a three-year-old El Salvadoran toddler was found abandoned by smugglers just outside of Brownsville. This DHS policy troubles Judge Hannon for three reasons. First and foremost, human trafficking is controlled by and helps fund the drug cartels. He didn't need to list the dangers facing minors and adults as they are smuggled into the U.S. 
In the last year alone, the judge had, quote, seen instances where aliens being smuggled were assaulted, raped, kidnapped and or killed. Judge Hannon cited a long report on drug cartels that describes, quote, their exploitation and trafficking of children and, quote, the violence, extortion, forced labor, sexual assault or prostitution, end quote, to which they subject children and adults time and again. The judge related this court has been told by representatives of the government that cartels control the entire smuggling process. These entities are not known for their concern for human life. They do not hire bonded child care providers to smuggle children by fostering an atmosphere whereby illegal aliens are encouraged to pay human smugglers for further services. The government is not only allowing them to fund the illegal and evil activities of these cartels, but is also inspiring them to do so, end quote. By virtue of this DHS policy, American citizens are, quote, helping fund these evil ventures with their tax dollars. Second, Judge Hannon said that the DHS policy undermines the deterrent effect the laws may have and inspires others to commit further violations. Since it is DHS policy to deliver the smuggled children to their parents and not initiate deportation proceedings against them or prosecute them for human trafficking, they, quote, perceive that they have nothing to lose but some time and effort. If the human traffickers are successful, so much the better. Mission accomplished. Even if their co-conspirators are unsuccessful, the government will finish the job of the human traffickers. Mission still accomplished. End quote. Even worse, this DHS policy is, quote, encouraging individuals to turn their children over to complete strangers, strangers about whom only one thing is truly known. They are criminals involved in criminal conspiracy. End quote. This is a federal judge saying this. That the DHS policy is encouraging human trafficking cannot be doubted. Judge Hannon cites statistics showing that the number of unaccompanied alien children apprehensions along the U.S.-Mexican border increased 81 percent from fiscal year 2010 to fiscal year 2012. As the judge says, quote, an 81 percent increase in two years should tell the DHS what its policy is doing. It encourages this kind of Russian roulette. Finally, Judge Hannon said that this DHS policy, quote, lowers the morale of those law enforcement agents on the front line, end quote. They, quote, do their best to enforce our laws with no small risk to their own safety. It is, quote, shameful that some policymaker in their agency institutes a course of inaction that negates their efforts. Judge Hannon made clear that it is not his, quote, goal to divide or separate family members, end quote. But there is no reason why the DHS cannot, quote, reunite the parent and child by apprehending the parent who has committed not one, but at least two different crimes, end quote. Instead, American taxpayers are not only paying the cost of transporting smuggled children across the country for deliver to the illegal alien parents, but are also paying room and board for the children and the salary and travel expense of a guardian to accompany them. The judge calls that, quote, an absurd and illogical result. Judge Hannon said he would not address two issues that some might raise. 
whether it is in the best interests of this 10-year-old girl, quote, to be reunited with a parent who had previously abandoned that child in a different country, and whether a responsible parent would place her child not only in the care of total strangers, but also in the care of total strangers, which she knows are criminals, end quote. He did note, however, that, quote, most courts in the United States would not find that to be good parenting. As Judge Hannon concludes, the decision of Salmaron Santos to smuggle her child across the border, quote, even if motivated by the best of motives, is not an excuse for the United States government to further a criminal conspiracy and by doing so encourage others to break the law and endanger additional children, end quote. The DHS policy is, quote, as logical as taking illegal drugs or weapons that it has seized from smugglers and delivering them to the criminals who initially solicited their illegal importation and exportation. Legally, this situation is not different. End quote. He says, while the court is not blind to the needs of a minor child, a concern for common decency does not compel the government to, quote, not only aid, but also reward an individual for initiating a scheme to break the laws governing the border security of this country. And it does not compel the government to aid the drug cartels who control this human trafficking. Finally, Judge Hannon tossed out the excuse the Obama administration often gives for its highly questionable behavior, prosecutorial discretion. The judge said that while prosecutors have the ability to defer prosecution or arrest in particular cases, quote, it is not aware of any accepted legal principle, including prosecutorial discretion, that not only allows the government to decline prosecutions, but further allows it to actually complete the intended criminal mission, end quote. The court ends with a stern admonition to the Obama administration, quote, the DHS should enforce the laws of the United States, not break them. And prosecutorial discretion is a major issue, especially in cities presided over by George Soros district attorneys and in states presided over by George Soros attorneys general. They have been operating for a long time that the principle of prosecutorial discretion allows them to just simply not prosecute criminals if those criminals are part of their political agenda. And what we end up with is simply a way to work outside of the law so long as you know no one is going to prosecute you for it. And here's a bit more about prosecutorial discretion from findlaw.com. Prosecutorial discretion is when a prosecutor has the power to decide whether or not to charge a person for a crime and which criminal charges to file. This is a rather broad power that also gives prosecutors the authority to enter into plea bargains with a defendant, which can result in the defendant pleading guilty to a lesser charge or receiving a lesser sentence for pleading guilty to the original charge. An example of this is a police officer letting you go with a warning when they could have charged you with speeding. When prosecutors use their discretion, prosecutors may have a variety of reasons for using prosecutorial discretion. One reason that a prosecutor may decide not to file charges against a defendant is a lack of evidence. A prosecutor has the burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt any charges they file against the defendant. So if the evidence isn't there or it's shaky, they may decide against filing the charges. 
Prosecutorial discretion also allows prosecutors not to file charges, to drop charges, or to offer a plea deal when the circumstances surrounding the crime warrant it. For example, if the facts and evidence indicate that killing was actually in self-defense, which can be a close call in some cases, the prosecutor may reduce the charges from murder to manslaughter or even drop the charges entirely. So there's supposed to be a justification there that relates to the circumstances of the case. It's not just supposed to be. We're going to ignore the laws that the legislature, the representatives of the people have passed because we don't like the politics of it or because we want the law to be a different way. They've created a justification, a rationalization here for why following the laws as written by the legislature simply is not necessary. And the explanation is really nothing more than I have the power in my position to make this choice and I simply choose not to. So they totally violate the will of the people by violating the law that the legislature has put in place. The legislature is meant to be the people most accountable to the will of the people. And then you might say, well, if you don't like what the district attorney is doing or the attorney general is doing, you can just vote them out of office. Except, of course, in the circumstance where our elections are stolen. They even tried to recall George Gascon, the Los Angeles district attorney, a George Soros district attorney who uses prosecutorial discretion all the time to not prosecute crimes. They recalled him and that didn't work. That's how stolen our elections are. And instead we're told, oh, you know, California, it's just so deep blue. This is also the basis for why Ron DeSantis removed the state attorney suspended the state attorney from his position for failing to enforce the state's abortion laws. That's what can and should happen to people who refuse to do their job according to the law and are still government officials somehow. But of course, that would require other politicians actually taking their jobs seriously. And there's no incentive for them to do that. When we have stolen elections. All right. So back to the Twitter files. And with this one, I will be caught up on the Twitter files and they'll probably drop one this afternoon. And then we're going to talk about it tomorrow again. This is by David Zweig. Now, David Zweig is, according to his Twitter profile, the author of a book called Invisibles with a forthcoming book called An Abundance of Caution. He writes for The Atlantic, New York Magazine, Wired, The New York Times, and of course, Barry Weiss's The Free Press. This is a 100% Trump-hating leftist. Like any standard leftist, he thinks that Trump is despicable and his response to COVID was a failure. He even was making jokes near the end of March 2021 about Trump tweeting that he wanted to open up the schools. The schools should have never been closed. There are places in the world that the schools were never closed and there was never a problem. Trump calling for the schools to be open is good. And these sorts of people thought he was being very dangerous and very irresponsible. 
And it really is important to understand the perspective of these people as you get into what they're actually releasing and how it's all being framed. And you're going to see that pretty clearly as we go through this. The Twitter files, how Twitter rigged the COVID debate by censoring info that was true but inconvenient to U.S. government policy. That's one way. By discrediting doctors and other experts who disagreed and by suppressing ordinary users, including some sharing the CDC's own data. So far, the Twitter files have focused on evidence of Twitter's secret blacklists, how the company functioned as a kind of subsidiary of the FBI, and how execs rewrote the platform's rules to accommodate their own political desires. What we have yet to cover is COVID. This reporting for the free press is one piece of that important story. The United States government pressured Twitter and other social media platforms to elevate certain content and suppress other content about COVID-19. Internal files at Twitter that I viewed while on assignment for the free press, a lot of advertising here, showed that both the Trump and Biden administrations directly pressed Twitter executives to moderate the platform's pandemic content according to their wishes. Now, already we are at a problem. Because this is being framed as something both sides did in essentially the same way. And we know that's not true. At the onset of the pandemic, according to meeting notes, the Trump administration was especially concerned about panic buying. They came looking for, quote, help from the tech companies to combat misinformation about, quote, runs on grocery stores. But there were runs on grocery stores and I have absolutely no idea, and I don't think anyone else does either, where David Zweig is pulling these screenshots from that he is posting in these tweets. It looks like he has taken his phone and taken a picture of the computer screen. In fact, that's definitely what happened. I'm not sure that he's the one that did it. But the screenshot here says the Trump White House, specifically Michael Kratzios, led the Trump administration's calls for help from the tech companies to combat misinformation. Areas of focus included conspiracies around 5G cell towers, runs on grocery stores, and misinformation that could stoke panic buying and behaviors. And whatever the screenshot of a screenshot he took was, there were links at some point to information that apparently backs up that claim. Now, I had never heard of Michael Kratzios, but it turns out that if you look him up on the World Economic Forum's website, he's right there, listed as the managing director of a company called Scale AI. Michael served as the fourth chief technology officer of the United States at the White House. As the president's top technology advisor, Michael led the development and execution of the National Technology Policy Agenda. Michael previously served as Undersecretary of Defense. As the third highest ranking official at the Department of Defense, Michael managed the largest research and development budget for a single organization in the world, supervising all research, engineering, development, and prototyping at the Pentagon. Michael is currently a managing director at Scale AI, leading corporate strategy and helping accelerate AI applications across industries. It's interesting that the World Economic Forum does not mention once in that description that the president he worked for was Donald Trump. But he is apparently a likely World Economic Forum asset, and he is working in the AI field 
to accelerate AI applications across the world. Former Department of Defense as well. Was he tasked to interface with Twitter about censorship? And if so, by whom? Was it someone on the COVID task force? It's hard to imagine that it was Donald Trump. And of course, there is no proof, no evidence whatsoever of what was actually censored as a product of these requests. And that's kind of critical. It wasn't just Twitter. The meetings with the Trump White House were also attended by Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and others. Okay, well, again, the Trump DOJ was meeting with Twitter, the FBI, the CIA, DHS. We know the organizations were meeting with Twitter to discuss censoring the Hunter Biden laptop and information about the elections. You could just as easily and just as accurately, which is to say technically accurate and totally misleading. But you could say that that was Trump's DOJ, Trump's DHS, Trump's FBI. That's how much sense this framing makes. And again, he's only relying on a digital photograph of a computer screen. It says Twitter, alongside several other tech companies, including Google, Facebook and Microsoft, participated. Activities included a standing weekly call to share general trends and hosting a shared Microsoft Teams group. Some of the companies, not Twitter, gathered open sourced information from researchers. Our teams fed this information to the Twitter policy enforcement teams. So again, very little detail about who was involved or what was actually done. Moving on. When the Biden admin took over, one of their first meeting requests with Twitter executives was on COVID. The focus was on, quote, anti-vaxxer accounts, especially Alex Berenson. In the summer of 2021, President Biden said social media companies were, quote, killing people for allowing vaccine misinformation. Berenson was suspended hours after Biden's comments and kicked off the platform the following month. Now, if you've listened to the show, you'll know I have absolutely no love and very little respect for Alex Berenson. He has consistently been way behind on everything COVID related, and he is seen by the mainstream as the edgy truth teller about COVID. That is, intentionally or not, controlled opposition, even if it's only controlled by Alex Berenson's desperation to remain always in the party of false decorum, which he certainly does have. He sued Twitter. He crowdfunded that lawsuit. He told the people donating to that crowdfunding campaign that he would definitely take the case through discovery and expose what was going on in Twitter. Instead, he took a settlement and just got his Twitter account back. So he got paid and he got his Twitter account back. Did he refund the money to the people who crowdfunded his legal effort? Of course not. Did he just move on with no explanation? Of course. Did he say he was going to produce all this evidence down the line? Yes. Has he? Of course not. Berenson sued and then settled with Twitter. In the legal process, Twitter was compelled to release certain internal communications which showed direct White House pressure on the company to take action on Berenson. A December 2022 summary, that's this month, of meetings with the White House by Lauren Culbertson. Twitter's head of U.S. public policy adds new evidence of the White House's pressure campaign and cements that it repeatedly attempted to directly influence the platform. Where is this kind of statement about what Donald Trump did? 
right? Michael Kratzios communicated with Twitter at the very beginning of the pandemic about very specific things. And then there's nothing else. And we know that Twitter was only interested in censoring information that directly opposes the narrative Donald Trump was putting out himself in the White House press briefing room. So where is the proof that Donald Trump and the Trump administration was actually involved in this? What we have, as usual, are rogue subversive elements within that Trump administration who are acting as part of the coup. But nonetheless, it's framed as if Trump should share in the burden of blame of the Biden administration for actually and actively violating the First Amendment rights of American citizens to censor information that is inconvenient to the regime. Culbertson wrote that the Biden team was very angry that Twitter had not been more aggressive in deplatforming multiple accounts. They wanted Twitter to do more. Very angry. Joe Biden was very angry that they weren't censoring hard enough. Whatever the level of censorship was, it wasn't working. The truth was still getting out. So it wasn't enough. They had to demand more. And Biden was very angry that it wasn't working. You got to wonder if he started screaming in German. The photograph of a computer screen says the Biden team was not satisfied with Twitter's enforcement approach as they wanted Twitter to do more and to deplatform several accounts. Because of this dissatisfaction, we were asked to join several other calls. They were very angry in nature. Twitter executives did not fully capitulate to the Biden team's wishes. An extensive review of internal communications at the company revealed employees often debating moderation cases in great detail and with more care than was shown by the government toward free speech. Again, this is the Biden administration. And because of the way Zweig framed this from the beginning, we are supposed to just take on the idea that the Trump administration was essentially doing the same thing, but they weren't. And it doesn't even make sense to think they were. But Twitter did suppress views, many from doctors and scientific experts that conflicted with the official positions of the White House. As a result, legitimate findings and questions that would have expanded the public debate went missing. There were three serious problems with Twitter's process. First, much of the content moderation was conducted by bots trained on machine learning and AI, impressive in their engineering, yet still too crude for such nuanced work. So you get it? The machine was what caused the problem. Even though we've seen plenty of human interference in all of this human activity in regard to censorship, it was mostly the machine. That is a cover-up for Twitter. And it is honestly impressive, the cover-up operation that these regime journalists at the free press, Barry Weiss's well-funded news organization, are capable of. Second, Contractors in places like the Philippines also moderated content. They were given decision trees to aid in the process, but tasking non-experts to adjudicate tweets on complex topics like myocarditis and mask efficacy data was destined for a significant error rate. Multiple problems with this tweet because we have a degenerate communist writing the tweets. The contractors in places like the Philippines who work on Twitter censorship 
have absolutely horrible jobs. They have to look at all of the worst stuff in the entire world. And it's a subject worth researching on its own. I can't get too deep into it here, but there's no way in the world that anyone should be tasked with figuring out what to censor based on their understanding of myocarditis or mask efficacy data. That should not be happening at all. It doesn't matter that they're not experts. Experts shouldn't have that ability either. There just simply should not be censorship. But of course, you're talking about people who believe there should be censorship. That disinformation is very dangerous. Third, most importantly, the buck stopped with higher level employees at Twitter who chose the inputs for the bots and decision trees and subjectively decided escalated cases and suspensions. As it is with all people and institutions, there was individual and collective bias. Oh, it's just bias. It's not a system. It's just people making mistakes on their own. If the bots and the contractors in the Philippines aren't getting the job done. With COVID, this bias bent heavily toward establishment dogmas. Oh, you mean like the ones the Trump administration holds because they were doing the censorship too? Got it. Inevitably, dissident yet legitimate content was labeled as misinformation, and the accounts of doctors and others were suspended both for tweeting opinions and demonstrably true information. And remember, the person writing this thinks that Trump was being irresponsible by encouraging schools to be open. This person is actually a victim of censorship because he has been rendered clueless about an important issue due to the very censorship he was recommending. Exhibit A, Dr. Martin Koldorf, an epidemiologist at Harvard Medical School, tweeted views at odds with U.S. public health authorities and the American left the political affiliation of nearly the entire staff at Twitter. And Koldorf was quote tweeting an account called endemic equilibrium who writes, Dr. Koldorf, do you think younger age groups and or people who already had the virus need to be vaccinated? I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I am vaccine hesitant about this one. It seems to be a religious mantra now that everyone must be vaccinated. This was March 15th of 2021. Kuldorf responds, no, thinking that everyone must be vaccinated is as scientifically flawed as thinking that nobody should. COVID vaccines are important for older high risk people and their caretakers. Those with prior natural infection do not need it, nor children. And we can skip analyzing that statement about vaccine efficacy for anyone. Let's just skip it all together. We're just going to let this one go. Internal emails show an intent to action by a moderator saying Kuldorf's tweet violated the company's COVID-19 misinformation policy and claimed he shared false information. But Kuldorf's statement was an expert's opinion, that expert being Martin Kuldorf, one which also happened to be in line with vaccine policies in numerous other countries. Yet it was deemed false information by Twitter moderators merely because it differed from CDC guidelines. And it's important to remember that the CDC is a quasi-governmental organization that receives outside funding and works directly with the pharmaceutical industry. They decided, people decided, 
It's not some objective fact about the world that the CDC has all the answers when it comes to science. They certainly don't because they have changed their own definitions about things and have completely reversed prior positions. And you might say, well, it's good to completely reverse your prior position if the science changes. And I would agree with that. But the science didn't change. They just had a position that was already proven to be wrong, that was known to be wrong, like their statements about masks, for instance, or any statements about the efficacy of the PCR test. They knew these things didn't work. It took them months or years to inform the American public about that. And in the meantime, their position was still held to be authoritative and the science, even though it conflicted with the actual science. After Twitter took action, Kuldorf's tweet was slapped with a misleading label and all replies and likes were shut off, throttling the tweet's ability to be seen and shared by many people, the ostensible core function of the platform. So he gets to post it, but no one can see it, which means it can't go viral and no discussion can actually be had about it. In my review of internal files, I found countless instances of tweets labeled as misleading or taken down entirely, sometimes triggering account suspensions simply because they veered from CDC guidance or differed from establishment views. No kidding. A tweet by Kelly KGA, a self-proclaimed public health fact checker with 18,000 followers, was flagged as misleading and replies and likes disabled, even though it displayed the CDC's own data literally displays their own data in the tweet in a picture, and it got labeled misleading. Internal records showed that a bot had flagged the tweet and that it received many tattles, what the system amusingly called reports from users. Oh, yes, their pet names for censorship are so amusing. That triggered a manual review by a human who, despite the tweet showing actual CDC data, nevertheless labeled it misleading. So the human agreed with the bot that the CDC's own data had the ability to lead someone to a conclusion that would be inconvenient for the regime. Therefore, that person would be misled. They would be pulled off course based on what the regime wants. Therefore, it's got to be misinformation because if it's misleading, then it has to be misinformation. And clearly it has the potential to mislead. Tellingly, the tweet by Kelly KGA that was labeled misleading was a reply to a tweet that contained actual misinformation. And the reply was to an account that goes by the name Greg underscore Travis. He wrote, as do I, here's some data. Since December of 2021, COVID has been the leading cause of death from disease in children. Now that just simply isn't true. That has never been true, not at any point. In fact, the head of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, was asked in Senate testimony how many children had died of COVID, just COVID, and she did not have an answer because, of course, the answer is zero. If you can't even prove a single one, we're supposed to believe that COVID is one of the leading causes of death in children? Absolutely insane. Whether by humans or algorithms, content that was contrarian but true was still subject to getting flagged or suppressed. This tweet was labeled misleading, even though the owner of this account, and it's a strange name not worth spelling, a physician was referring to the results of a published study. The tweet that was censored and labeled misleading is 
Below, the first study I've seen showing that mRNA vaccines in young people aged 16 to 39 are associated with cardiac arrests, not just myocarditis. And he shows the instances based on the vaccine dose, a fact that we all know now to be true. But Twitter labeled it misleading. And when Twitter labels that sort of information misleading, it prevents people from knowing the real facts about what they're injecting into their body, which is an experimental gene therapy that is neither safe nor effective. It doesn't prevent transmission, infection, serious illness or death. And in fact, it causes all of that and it causes more COVID. And that study just came out last week from the Cleveland Clinic. This stuff is beyond doubt now. I mean, we've been saying it for a long, long time, but this stuff is just out there right in front of the mainstream. And they still deny that it's true. They still act like these are just all mistakes. All these mistakes just coincidentally happened all in the same direction, all for the same purpose. (laughs) You know, human error. Thank goodness these kind of errors don't have a death toll. Oh, wait, they do have a death toll. Well, what is it that the Biden administration was really doing? Andrew Bostom, a Rhode Island physician, was permanently suspended from Twitter after receiving multiple strikes for misinformation. One of his strikes was for a tweet referring to the results from a peer-reviewed study on mRNA vaccines. And his tweet was, Primary COVID-19 BNT162B mRNA vaccination temporarily impairs semen concentration and total motile count among semen donors with apparent rebound by around five months, but no data on boostering effect. Does boostering yield another decline? Followed by, this is about human reproductivity. Shouldn't this be the sort of thing that is widely publicized if you're actually concerned about good health outcomes or saving people's lives or allowing normal people to have happy lives and have families? But no, that would be misleading because it would convince people not to get the vaccine. They would be led away from getting the vaccine. And even though not getting the vaccine is the right conclusion, getting the vaccine is the necessary conclusion. And you can't be misled away from the necessary conclusion. A review of Twitter log files revealed that an internal audit conducted after Bostom's attorney contacted Twitter found that only one of Bostom's five violations were valid. Oh, thank goodness. They're probably going to rectify the problem of him not being able to spread correct and potentially life-saving information with the public. Are they going to give an apology? Is that how it's going to work? The one Boston tweet found to still be in violation cited data that was legitimate but inconvenient to the public health establishment's narrative about the risks of flu versus COVID in children. He wrote, U.S. and local Rhode Island data, influenza is more lethal than COVID-19 in children, while COVID-19 vaccination causes more serious morbidity than influenza vaccination in children. That's the sort of thing people might want to know while they're being told by the state to get their children vaccinated. This was from April 28th of this year. That this tweet was not only flagged by a bot, but its violation manually affirmed by a staff member is telling of both the algorithmic and human bias at play. Boston's account was suspended for months and was finally restored on Christmas Day. This is just a few days ago. 
Another example of human bias run amok was the reaction to this tweet by Trump. Many Trump tweets led to extensive internal debates, and this one was no different. Trump tweeted, I will be leaving the great Walter Reed Medical Center today at 630 p.m. feeling really good. Don't be afraid of covid. Don't let it dominate your life. We have developed under the Trump administration some really great drugs and knowledge. I feel better than I did 20 years ago. And I think everybody probably remembers that tweet. Trump went to Walter Reed because he had COVID. He spent the entire time working. He took a little tour around, waving to supporters from the car. And then the next day, he left the hospital, took his mask off on the steps of the White House and has been in tippy top shape ever since. But they censored him because he was misleading people into the belief that COVID wasn't all that dangerous and that we had ways to treat it. And of course, it wasn't all that dangerous. It has the infection fatality rate of an average flu. And there were readily available treatments that people were prevented from getting by rogue elements of the federal bureaucracy during the Trump administration. Did Trump's FDA prevent people from getting ivermectin? Yes. Did Trump do that? Is Trump morally culpable for that? No. Which is, again, the problem with David Zweig's commie framing of this. In a surreal exchange, Jim Baker, at the time Twitter's deputy general counsel, asks why telling people not to be afraid wasn't a violation of Twitter's COVID-19 misinformation policy. Yoel Roth, Twitter's former head of trust and safety, had to explain that optimism wasn't misinformation. He wrote, adding you to the main thread on the subject, in short, this tweet is a broad optimistic statement. It doesn't incite people to do something harmful, nor does it recommend against taking precautions or following mask directives or other guidelines. It doesn't fall within the published scope of our policies. Curious whether you have a different read on it, though. Please tell us how we can censor it. You know we want to censor it just as badly as you do. Remember Kelly KGA with the CDC data tweet? Well, yeah, because it was five minutes ago. Twitter's response to her is clarifying. Quote, we will prioritize review and labeling of content that could lead to increased exposure or transmission. That doesn't make any sense. Twitter made a decision via the political leanings of senior staff and government pressure that the public health authorities approach to the pandemic, prioritizing mitigation over other concerns was the science. And he actually puts that in quotes. Which is funny for someone who went along with the science the entire time. And it's also worth noting that none of these steps that were claimed to constitute mitigation actually did constitute mitigation. They weren't mitigating anything because none of them worked. And all of the science showed that none of them would work before they were attempted. Information that challenged that view, such as showing harms of vaccines or that could be perceived as downplaying the risks of covid, especially to children, was subject to moderation and even suppression, no matter whether such views were correct or adopted abroad. And you got to focus on that, especially to children part. There was never any threat to children that was widely in evidence. It was easily available. Everyone could see it. The results from the real world bore it out. And still, that was a particular target of censorship. Why? 
so that they could continue to keep schools closed, so they could continue to do remote learning, so they could continue to keep masks on children. Those were the goals of their agenda. Those were really the goals of their agenda. They wanted to change schooling. The teachers unions wanted that. They wanted children masked, knowing the social and learning consequences that those masks would create. They wanted it anyway. Why did they want that? Well, it's probably because they're the same people who created the virus and the pandemic, created the vaccine, and often discuss how the world is overpopulated and that they must do things to limit the world's population in order to save the earth from the attack it's enduring from the sun. Are we really going to pretend that these people care about the lives of children? What might the pandemic and its aftermath have looked like if there had been a more open debate on Twitter and other social media platforms, not to mention the mainstream press, about the origins of COVID, about lockdowns, about the true risks of COVID in kids, and much more. Hey, David, ask yourself that question. What if you had personally, actually checked? What if you had bothered finding out whether or not you were being lied to? He sounds like Ben Shapiro here, honestly. It's everybody else's fault. If only we could have known. Hey, guys, you did know. You were told you heard the narratives that got censored just like everyone else heard them. You decided it was good they were censored because you believed the media. You believed the television. You trusted the experts when they said, oh, no, that's a conspiracy theory. Those people are very dangerous. They're actually just trying to kill you. You believed all of that, David. So, hey, it's your fault. But nope, nope, they can't take responsibility and they won't take responsibility because they're trying to maintain their position in the party of false decorum. And that means perpetuating the narrative, the mythical narrative that we're just finding all of this out right now. You can't retract your former position on Trump's failures or his despicableness or the idea that children really should have been kept out of schools because we just didn't know back then. It's someone else's fault, just like it was for Ben Shapiro and his wife, his doctor wife, and of course, Jordan Peterson, and literally everyone else who does this. Oh, I was so wrong because I trusted the wrong people. No, you were wrong because you didn't check. And you knew that if you said the thing the regime didn't like, you were going to be exiled from the party of false decorum. You were going to be shamed. You were going to be bullied. You were going to be threatened out of your profession. There was going to be a social cost and other costs to standing up and telling the truth. So you simply took the easy way out, assuming that everyone else would be wrong, just like you were, and no one would ever be blamed. Now, I know I'm running a bit long here, but I really want to highlight a response to all of this from the Twitter account, Mike Benz Cyber, B-E-N-Z. Mike Benz is the executive director of of the Foundation for Freedom Online. And here is his bio from that website. Our executive director, Mike Benz, is a former State Department diplomat responsible for formulating and negotiating U.S. foreign policy on international communications and information technology matters. Mr. Benz 
founded FFO as a civil society institution, building on his experience in the role of championing digital freedom around the world in the public sector. So I've talked about him before. He's really been exposing exactly what the structure of this whole system was, what the government was really trying to do through this censorship in terms of their uh, initiatives overseas and after they directed it onto American citizens. He writes, the first substantive Fauci file is tweet six, which says the Trump administration came looking for help from the tech companies to combat misinformation. This is presumably to suggest it wasn't just Biden who pressured Twitter to censor that Trump did, too. But what are we even looking at in David Zweig's tweet six? What is this picture attached? His own personal notes? Where are the emails? Where are the transcripts of the calls with the Trump administration? Where are the source documents hyperlinked in his bullet point notes? And that's, as I mentioned earlier, right off the bat, we are plagued by the same problem that has made the Twitter files so maddeningly frustrating to date. David Zweig is telling us about Twitter conversations instead of showing us those conversations. We want source documents, not conclusory statements. What exactly did the Trump admin request Twitter do? Did they actually send takedown requests? Did they do very angry calls with Twitter like the Biden admin? Why is it hard to show us? Isn't this supposed to be showing inside documents? The same problem plagues tweet seven. Trump White House meeting with Google, Facebook and Microsoft to share general trends regarding COVID. Did Trump admin actually request post takedowns? Can you share the meeting agendas, emails, calls? Show us. Don't tell. Incredibly, David Zweig doesn't even give dates of those meetings with the Trump White House or approximate dates so we can sync it up with other timelines. Google, Facebook and Microsoft were extremely active in 2020 in government censorship initiatives with DHS and State Department. For example, Microsoft in 2018 made a huge move into the Internet censorship space about a dozen different directions. A cyber cell within Microsoft set up the Democracy Forward program and used it to prop up and expand NewsGuard. We have covered NewsGuard many times, but for those new to its government funding origins and role in the censorship industry, see this helpful clip. And Mike Benz's point throughout a bunch of this is I have put all this information out on Twitter and elsewhere, some of it long ago. So what is the new information coming out here and why is it being presented so poorly? Why are we being given this false equivalency between Donald Trump's administration and Joe Biden's administration. But let's go on because this is not all that long. With your tax dollars funding their censors, NewsGuard has been blasting COVID dissident news sites out of operability since early 2020. 631 news websites are advertiser and social media blacklisted on its coronavirus misinformation tracking center. Microsoft President Brad Smith has been wielding the company's massive resources toward Internet censorship since 2018 and has come to sound virtually indistinguishable from Kamala Harris when it comes to censorship issues. And he includes a YouTube link to an interview with Microsoft's Brad Smith. Microsoft's Democracy Forward Cell partnered with DHS's CISA under Chris Krebs, leveraging Krebs's deep network at Microsoft from his time as cyber director there. After backing NewsGuard, Microsoft created ElectionGuard, which CISA promoted. 
Chris Krebs, as you might remember, is the man who said that our 2020 election was the safest and most secure election of all time. His voice is in the intro section of my show during the music. That Chris Krebs. In tweet eight, David Zweig says the Biden White House told Twitter to ban vax critical users like Alex Berenson. Okay, but we've known this for six plus months. Where are the source documents? Company calls are usually recorded. You don't have transcripts. Tweets 11 and 12 should be the best part of this entire Fauci files drop. The Biden admin gets very angry at Twitter for not censoring enough. And Twitter compiles a censorship presentation for those meetings. But the presentation is a hyperlink for David Zweig, not for us. Is this Twitter 2.0 or is it still Twitter 1.0? If Twitter compiled a presentation on COVID critical accounts to placate White House censorship demands, shouldn't we, the citizens of Twitter 2.0, be able to see the old censorship ways of Twitter 1.0? Why hide this from us? Sorry to say, but for the standards I have to uphold at Foundation for Freedom Online, I can't take any of this to the bank. If this were a trial, none of these posts would even be admissible. They'd be hearsay. When asked my source, I never want to have to say, David Zweig told me, trust him. Fauci Files tweets 19 through 31 have genuinely helpful insider exchanges about how Twitter, under pressure from government, censored true information about COVID. Perhaps most useful is tweet 25, where Twitter flagged users who simply cited the CDC's own data. But even this is nowhere remotely close to breaking new ground. FFO, that's his organization, reported how DHS, while partnered with Twitter, encouraged mass flagging of true information about COVID, including Twitter users posting CDC data four months ago. Watch this COVID censorship video below made by CISA, now helmed by former NSA counterterrorism czar Jen Easterly. And he attaches a video and says, you, taxpayer, paid for it. Watch how at 143 to 148, DHS still instructs you to flag your family members post, even though they cite official CDC data. And it is frankly evasive at best and a cop out or cover up at worst to lay blame for Twitter's vast and totalizing COVID censorship enforcement at the feet of mechanical Turk jobs in the Philippines, like David Zweig highlights in tweet 16. Foundation for Freedom Online covered how Twitter censors worked hand in hand with CDC to shut down posts and accounts challenging COVID orthodoxy. And they didn't go all the way to the Philippines. They took takedown orders from, quote, infodemic manager unicorns, end quote, straight out of WHO. Can the next Fauci files please build on what we already know, i.e. America First Legal already FOIAed CDC emails showing Todd Boyle at Twitter was, quote, requesting problem accounts, end quote, to censor on CDC's behalf. Can you give us more Todd O'Boyle emails? Let's be specific. We know from America First Legal FOIAs that Todd O'Boyle, Megan Dorward, and Reggie McCrimmon set up, quote unquote, regular basis meetings to censor, quote unquote, vaccine misinformation the CDC wanted banned from Twitter. Show us their emails. In all, the best receipt from this drop is tweet 34, showing former FBI general counsel Jim Baker tried to get Trump's tweets censored simply for saying, don't be afraid of COVID. 
While it's a great receipt, it doesn't exactly teach us anything new because, of course, Mike Benz had already previously covered this stuff and didn't need the Twitter files to do it. There is so much more to say here. We need insider emails on role of the Pentagon, the virality project, DHS, and exact Biden White House officials, not Biden White House, real names of real people. Lastly, it's called the Twitter files. The operative word is files. Open them up. Pentagon cutouts like Graphica and Atlantic Council DFR Lab worked with NATO hybrid war centers in January 2020, one month after COVID started, we are told, to flag Twitter posts en masse to censor questions of origin. Hey, Elon Musk, got anything on that? Now, Mike Benz correctly points out that COVID had started earlier. So we're told started earlier in China, December 2019, November 2019, October 2019. It could have started even prior to that, but we know it was definitely around for the military games in October of 2019, months before anyone reacted to it at all. So the Pentagon and NATO and the Atlantic Council and Graphica are working on Twitter censorship for COVID before it's even a public thing, a widely known public thing. A lot of people had not heard of the coronavirus that was happening in China in January of 2020 or even in February of 2020. People started hearing it mid-February to mid-March, and that's when some action was finally taken. That's when lockdowns and everything else began. Two weeks to slow the spread. What does it say that they were already worried about massive censorship efforts before the public was actually talking about it? Not knowing what the public would say, they still needed it censored. But, oh, they only wanted the origins of the coronavirus censored because it was a bat. It was a bat, everybody. The origin was a bat, which is why we have to censor everything else that says not bat. Oh, two years later, the origin is not bat. And now we can say it. So why did they want to censor that? Why did they want to censor everything else? And why did they need a massive structure, a system designed to be able to censor people saying true things about COVID? It's almost like they wanted to pull off a pandemic hoax against the entire world. But that's a conspiracy theory. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree linktree.com slash I'm your moderator and I'll see you soon out on the range
It's high noon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hot!